Vienna. Strange and unusual stories from history, literature, myths, and legends. Ferme tes yeux à demi, croise tes bras sur ton sein, et ton cœur endormi chasse à jamais tout dessein. Je chante la nature, les étoiles du soir, les larmes du matin, les couchers de soleil à l'horizon lointain, le ciel qui parle au cœur d'existence future. The Street of the Four Winds The animal paused on the threshold, interrogative alert, ready for flight if necessary. Severn laid down his palate and held out a hand of welcome. The cat remained motionless, her yellow eyes fastened upon Severn. Puss, he said in his low, pleasant voice. Come in. The tip of her thin tail twitched uncertainly. Come in, he said again. Apparently she found his voice reassuring, for she slowly settled upon all fours, her eyes still fastened upon him, her tail tucked under her gaunt flanks. He rose from his easel, smiling. She eyed him quietly, and when he walked towards her, she watched him bend above her without a wince. Her eyes followed his hand until it touched her head. Then she uttered a ragged mew. It had long been Severn's custom to converse with animals, probably because he lived so much alone. And now he said, What's the matter, puss? Her timid eyes sought his. I understand, he said gently. You shall have it at once. Then, moving quietly about, he busied himself with the duties of a host, rinsed a saucer, filled it with the rest of the milk from the bottle on the windowsill, and kneeling down, crumbled a roll into the hollow of his hand. The creature rose and crept towards the saucer. With the handle of the palette knife, he stirred the crumbs and milk together, and stepped back as she thrust her nose into the mess. He watched her in silence. From time to time, the saucer clinked upon the tiled floor as she reached for a morsel on the rim, and at last the bread was all gone, and her purple tongue traveled over every unlicked spot until the saucer shone like polished marble. Then she sat up, and coolly turning her back to him, began her ablutions. Keep it up, said Severn, much interested. You need it. She flattened one ear, but neither turned nor interrupted her toilet. As the grime was slowly removed, Severn observed that nature had intended her for a white cat. Her fur had disappeared in patches from disease or the chances of war. Her tail was bony and her spine sharp. But what charm she had were becoming apparent under vigorous licking, and he waited until she had finished before reopening the conversation. When at last she closed her eyes and folded her forepaws under her breast, he began again very gently. Puss, tell me your troubles. At the sound of his voice, she broke into a harsh rumbling, which he recognized as an attempt to purr. He bent over to rub her cheek, and she mewed again, an amiable, inquiring little mew. 
To which he replied, Certainly you are greatly improved, and when you recover your plumage, you will be a gorgeous bird. Much flattered, she stood up and marched around and around his legs, pushing her head between them and making pleased remarks, to which he responded with grave politeness. Now, what sent you here, he said, here into the street of the four winds, and up five flights of stairs to the very door where you would be welcome? What was it that prevented your immediate flight when I turned from my canvas to encounter your yellow eyes? Are you a Latin quarter cat as I am a Latin quarter man? And why do you wear a rose-colored flowered garter buckled around your neck? The cat had climbed into his lap and now sat purring as he passed his hand over her thin coat. Excuse me, he continued in lazy, soothing tones, harmonizing with her purring, if I seem indelicate. But I cannot help musing on this rose-colored garter, flowered so quaintly and fastened with a silver clasp. For the clasp is silver. I can see the mint mark on the edge, as is prescribed by the law of the French Republic. Now, why is this garter woven of rose silk and delicately embroidered? Why is this silken garter with its silver clasp about your famished throat? Am I indiscreet when I inquire if its owner is your owner? Is she some aged dame living in memory of youthful vanities, fond, doting on you, decorating you with her intimate, personal attire? The circumference of the garner would suggest this, for your neck is thin, and the garter fits you. But then again, I notice, I notice most things, that the garner is capable of being much enlarged. These small silver-rimmed eyelets, of which I count five, are proof of that. And now, I observe that the fifth eyelet is worn out, as though the tongue of the clasp were accustomed to lie there. This seems to argue a well-rounded form. The cat curled her toes in contentment. The street was very still outside. He murmured on, Why should your mistress decorate you with an article most necessary to her at all times? Anyway, at most times, how did she come to slip this bit of silk and silver about your neck? Was it the caprice of a moment when you, before you had lost your pristine plumpness, marched singing into her bedroom to bid her good morning? Of course, and she sat up among the pillows, her coiled hair tumbling to her shoulders, as you sprang upon the bed purring, Good day, my lady. Oh, it is very easy to understand, he yawned, resting his head on the back of the chair. The cat still purred, tightening and relaxing her padded claws over his knee. Shall I tell you all about her, cat? She is very beautiful, your mistress, he murmured drowsily, and her hair is heavy as burnished gold. I could paint her, not on canvas, for I should need shades and tones and hues and dyes more splendid than the iris of a splendid rainbow. I could only paint her with closed eyes, for in dreams alone can such colors as I need be found. For her eyes, I must have azure from skies untroubled by a cloud. 
the skies of dreamland. For her lips, roses from the palaces of slumberland. And for her brow, snowdrifts from the mountains which tower in fantastic pinnacles to the moons. Oh, much higher than our moon here, the crystal moons of dreamland. She is very beautiful, your mistress. The words died on his lips, and his eyelids drooped. The cat, too, was asleep. Her cheek turned up upon her wasted flank. Her paws relaxed and limp. It is fortunate, said Severn, sitting up and stretching, that we have tided over the dinner hour, for I have nothing to offer you for supper but what may be purchased for one silver franc. The cat on his knee rose, arched her back, yawned, and looked at him. What shall it be? A roast chicken with salad? Possibly you prefer beef, of course, and I shall try an egg and some white bread. Now for the wines. Milk for you? Good. I shall take a little water, fresh from the wood, with a motion towards the bucket in the sink. He put on his hat and left the room. The cat followed to the door, and after he had closed it behind him, she settled down, smelling at the cracks and cocking one ear at every creak from the crazy old building. The door below opened and shut. The cat looked serious for a moment, doubtful, and her ears flattened in nervous expectation. Presently she rose with a jerk of her tail and started on a noiseless tour of the studio. She sneezed at a pot of turpentine, hastily retreating to the table, which she presently mounted, and, having satisfied her curiosity concerning a roll of red modeling wax, returned to the door and sat down with her eyes on the crack over the threshold. Then she lifted her voice in a thin plaint. When Severn returned, he looked grave, but the cat, joyous and demonstrative, marched around him, rubbing her gaunt body against his legs, driving her head enthusiastically into his hand, and purring until her voice mounted to a squeal. He placed a bit of meat wrapped in brown paper upon the table, and with a penknife cut it into shreds. The milk he took from a bottle which he had served for medicine and poured it into the saucer on the hearth. The cat crouched before it, purring and lapping at the same time. He cooked his egg and ate it with a slice of bread, watching her busy with the shredded meat. And when he had finished and had filled and emptied the cup of water from the bucket in the sink, he sat down, taking her into his lap, where she at once curled up and began her toilet began to speak again, touching her caressingly at times by way of emphasis. Cat, I have found out where your mistress lives. It is not very far away. It is here, under the same leaky roof, but in the north wing which I had supposed was uninhabited. My janitor tells me this. By chance he is almost sober this evening. The butcher on the Rue de Seine, where I bought your meat, knows you, and old Cabane, the baker, identified you with. Needless sarcasm. They tell me hard tales of your mistress, which I shall not believe. They say she is idle and vain and pleasure-loving. They say she is harebrained and reckless. 
The little sculptor on the ground floor who was buying rolls from old Cobain spoke to me tonight for the first time, although we have always bowed to each other. He said she was very good and very beautiful. He has only seen her once and does not know her name. I thanked him. I don't know why I thanked him so warmly. Cobain said, Into this cursed street of the four winds, the four winds blow all things evil. The sculptor looked confused. When he went out with his rolls, he said to me, I am sure, monsieur, that she is as good as she is beautiful. The cat had finished her toilet, and now, springing softly to the floor, went to the door and sniffed. He knelt beside her, and unclasping the garter, held it for a moment in his hand. After a while, he said, There is a name engraved upon the silver clasp beneath the buckle. It is a pretty name. Sylvia Elvin. Sylvia is a woman's name. Elvin is the name of a town. In Paris, in this quarter above all, in this street of the four winds, names are worn and put away as the fashion changes with the seasons. I know the little town of Elvin, for there I met fate face to face, and fate was unkind. But do you know that in Elvin, fate had another name, and that name was Sylvia. He replaced the garter and stood up, looking down at the cat crouched before the closed door. The name of Elvin has a charm for me. It tells me of meadows and clear rivers. The name of Sylvia troubles me like perfume from dead flowers. The cat mewed. Yes, yes, he said soothingly. I will take you back. Your Sylvia is not my Sylvia. The world is wide and Elvin is not unknown. Yet in the darkness and filth of poorer Paris, in the sad shadows of this ancient house, these names are very pleasant to me. He lifted her in his arms and strode through the silent corridors to the stairs, down five flights and into the moonlit court, past the little sculptor's den, and then again in at the gate of the north wing, and up the warm mean stairs he passed, until he came to a closed door. When he had stood knocking for a long time, something moved behind the door. It opened, and he went in. The room was dark. As he crossed the threshold, the cat sprang from his arms into the shadows. He listened, but heard nothing. The silence was oppressive and he struck a match. At his elbow stood a table, and on the table a candle and a gilded candlestick. This he lighted, then looked around. The chamber was vast, the hangings heavy with embroidery. Over the fireplace towered a carved mantle, gray with the ashes of dead fires. In a recess by the deep-set window stood a bed, from which the bedclothes soft and fine as lace, trailed to the polished floor. He lifted the candle above his head. A handkerchief lay at his feet. It was faintly perfumed. He turned towards the windows. 
In front of them was a canopy, and over it were flung pell-mell, a gown of silk, a heap of lace-like garments, white and delicate as spiders' meshes, long, crumpled gloves, and on the floor beneath the stockings, little pointed shoes, and one garter of rosy silk, quaintly flowered and fitted with a silver clasp. Wondering, he stepped forward and drew the heavy curtains from the bed. For a moment, the candle flared in his hand, and his eyes met two other eyes, wide open, smiling, and the candle flame flashed over hair, heavy as gold. She was pale, but not as white as he. Her eyes were untroubled as a child's, but he stared, trembling from head to foot, while a candle flickered in his hand. At last, he whispered, Sylvia, it is I. Again, he said, It is I. Then, knowing that she was dead, he kissed her on the mouth, and through the long watches of the night, the cat purred on his knee, tightening and relaxing her padded claws, until the sky paled above the street of the four winds. Robert William Chambers was born in very comfortable circumstances in Brooklyn, New York in 1865 and died a very wealthy man in New York City in 1933. He was a painter and illustrator in his youth, having studied in Paris at the École des Beaux-Arts and the Académie Julienne from 1886 to 1893, and even exhibited his art at the prestigious Salon by 1889. On returning to New York in 1893, Chambers began a successful but brief career in art. I can't find any info as to whether he exhibited any paintings in the U.S., but his illustrations were featured in Life, Truth, and Vogue magazines. In many biographies of Chambers, his friendship with Charles Dana Gibson, the creator of the famous Gibson Girl illustrations, is often mentioned, and it's possible he could have had a similar career as an illustrator if he had continued in that line of work. However, a few years after his return to the U.S., Chambers decided to become a writer, and in this he found even greater success, especially during the years between 1895 and the early 1920s. He was a very popular author at that time, and his books were often serialized in the Cosmopolitan, Harper's Weekly, or the Saturday Evening Post magazines before appearing in hardcover. Chambers wrote historical fiction, weird tales, and perhaps most profitably, romance, often mixing all three elements in his various novels and anthologies. His protagonists often seem like stand-ins for himself, artistic, well-traveled, and unapologetically arrogant men of the American moneyed class. The women pursued by these men were always beautiful, the antagonists usually ugly, misshapen, foreign, or demonic. The quality of his writing and choice of subject varies. Chambers' first book, In the Quarter, portrays American art students living in the chaos of a war-torn Paris during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, and is actually quite good for a first novel, although marred by occasional anti-Semitism. There are certain sections of The Mystery of Choice, a weird tale anthology, 
featuring several entomological digressions that are beautifully written, such as Pompe Fondabrea and Passier. Chambers explore the world of cryptozoology with In Search of the Unknown, which is a collection of short stories featuring a somewhat unpleasant and lovelorn protagonist in search of extinct animals and mysterious cryptids. A well-known story from that book is The Harbor Master, featuring a bipedal fishman smitten by a beautiful young nurse, possibly influencing H.B. Lovecraft's Shadow over Innsmouth, and foreshadowing the horror movie Creature from the Black Lagoon. Chambers returned to the cryptid theme with Police, with three exclamation points, which is usually considered an inferior rehashing of the same subject. The Maker of Moons and the much later Slayer of Souls have aspects of the weird, as well as pulpy and unfortunate yellow peril tropes. He often returned to using the Franco-Prussian War as a backdrop for his historical novels, as he did in the books The Maids of Paradise, Lorraine, and The Red Republic. Other historical novels portrayed revolutionary America, as in the book America, and Cardigan, Captain Kidd in the book, The Man They Hanged, and the American Civil War in Secret Service Operator 13, about a young woman spying for the North. Chambers' upper-class romance series, which were his most popular books for a number of years, are very dated by today's standards. He did have a talent for writing this sort of thing, but best to explore on your own if you're really curious. I couldn't get through more than a chapter on any I tried to read, and couldn't find many detailed online synopsis of the material. Be that as it may, some can be found online at Project Gutenberg or for free at the Kindle store. The usual complement of frustrated painters, beautiful artist models, intrepid shop girls, snarky leisure class scions, and other chambers tropes can be found in what little I did manage to struggle through. Please forgive the omission. There's probably something of that sort on the BBC right now if you're really jonesing for it. Chambers could always write well when he wanted, but seems to have coasted his way through most of his literary career, seemingly sneering at the concept of literature. He wrote to make money, and was very successful in this regard. He did, however, write one great book that has influenced many other writers and continues to intrigue readers even today, The King in Yellow. This was his second book and was published in 1895, so different from the rest of his work that it almost seems to have been written by someone else. Work of great mystery and imagination, beguiling with the ambiguous as much as presenting scenes of true horror and oppressive dread. There are, of course, artists and models and romance, as per usual for Chambers, but many are under the influence of the mysterious and deadly play The King in Yellow. Bain in its first half, but driving any reader who ventures into the second half mad. Only very brief passages of the play are spread throughout the anthology, enhancing its mystery, allowing the reader's imagination to conjure up horrors that no play could ever plainly state. It's a brilliant concept. There are really only four stories in the book that directly reference the King in Yellow. The Repair of Reputations, The Yellow Sign, The Mask, and The Court of the Dragon. In each story, someone has read the play with dire and usually deadly consequences, the one exception being the artist Alec in The Mask. Alec is caught up in a love triangle between his good friend, the sculptor and inventor Boris, and Genevieve, the woman they both love and who loves them both. 
Boris develops a strange solution that can turn living things into a white, marble-like stone. Genevieve is having second thoughts about choosing Boris over Alec. One evening, while softly playing a spinet in a moonlit room next to a napping Alec, she is startled when he suddenly wakes up and calls her name. She rises from the spinet and trips over a wolf's head attached to an animal skin rug, and this leads to a sprained ankle and a downward slide into a fevered despondency. The next day, Alec, while looking for a distraction to avoid seeing Boris dip a living rabbit into the petrifying solution, casually picks up the king in yellow and starts reading. He slowly succumbs to the play's influence and falls into a weeks-long fever dream of Carcosa and the king. Meanwhile, while Alec is tripping balls on decadent lit, a still seriously despondent Genevieve gets turned into stone after jumping into the petrifying solution. And Boris blames himself and commits suicide. But it all works out in the end, at least for Alec. Genevieve is revived, and Boris has left his house and sculptures to Alec. Compare that fate with Hildred Castain from The Repairer of Reputations, who, after a fall from a horse, reads the cursed play while convalescing. Reading the play changes Castain's personality and perception of reality drastically, and he becomes a very unreliable narrator. There's a long introductory narrative about world and national events in what Castain claims to be 1920, although he is known by other characters in the book who seem to be living a decade or two earlier and speak of him in the past tense. These events are at points prescient or a book written in 1895, but are mostly absurd and subtly confirm the narrator's insane viewpoint and unreliability. Castain partners up with Mr. Wilde, the title character of this story, and schemes with him to seize the imperial crown of America from Castain's cousin Louis, the true heir. His plans go south when Mr. Wilde is killed by his own cat, and Castain, after claiming to have killed his doctor, is committed to an insane asylum, where he eventually dies. In the yellow sign, the painter Mr. Scott is disturbed by a strange-looking church watchman he sees when casually looking out a window. Afterwards, a painting he has been working on takes on a ghastly yellow tint that he can't get rid of. His model Tessie has reoccurring dreams of a haunted hearse carrying the still-living Mr. Scott trapped in a coffin. Mr. Scott has a similar dream from the point of view from inside the coffin, which has a glass lid. One thing leads to another and they become lovers. As a token of affection, Tessie gives Mr. Scott a strange clasp of black onyx with an indecipherable gold symbol on it that she has found on the street. Both read The King in Yellow, which has mysteriously manifested itself in Mr. Scott's library. Then, as if reading the play has given him access, the gelatinous church watchman, whom Tessie recognizes as the hearse driver in her dreams, comes for them seeking the mysterious yellow sign. And finally, the unnamed narrator of The Court of the Dragon seeks refuge in a small church after reading the play, but ends up being stalked by the demonic church organist, who begins hunting his soul throughout the streets of Paris, manipulating time and space in his relentless pursuit. The narrator is seemingly transported bodily to the otherworldly land of Carcosa, 
when he is eventually caught. Two other stories in the book make oblique references to the play, using the color yellow as a touchstone for the weird events to commence. In the Demoiselle Dix, a modern 19th century man named Philip is lost on a Breton moor and stumbles upon a mysterious woman named Jean Dix, her name seemingly being a pun on jaundice, a disease that can turn the skin yellow. In the street of the Four Winds, the artist Severn has a studio invaded by a yellow-eyed cat, which leads him to its owner, his former lover, Sylvia Elvin, now lost to him forever. The last three stories are straight-up romances featuring artists in love in 1870s Paris and don't have much connection to either the King and Yellow play or to anything truly weird. These are The Street of the First Shell, a story about a group of American artists during the Prussian siege of Paris, The Street of Our Lady of the Fields, about a young and naive American artist who falls in love with a young French woman who is not so naive, and Rue Barry, where two American art students harass a beautiful but disinterested working-class French musician with a spontaneous offer of marriage and an expensive rosebush. These three tales share some characters with each other and with the earlier stories, as well as characters from other Chambers books, such as In the Quarter and The Maze of Paradise, a somewhat odd way to end the book, perhaps even reusing material previously written. Preceding the story of The Street of Four Winds, there's a brief selection of very short prose poems called The Prophet's Paradise, strange and ambiguous tales of characters doing or saying odd things for unknown reasons. Some believe these are meant to be snippets from the King in Yellow itself, but I would hope the play was better than this, if indeed it had the power to drive the reader mad. Possibly they are inserted at this point in the book to mark the end of the King in Yellow's influence on the rest of the stories. So where did Chambers get his inspiration for this strange book, unique in so many ways to anything else he would write? Kenneth Height, game designer, podcaster, breakfast gourmand, and author of such works as Tour de Lovecraft, Clifford, The Big Red God, and Where the Deep Ones Are, has collaborated with artist Samuel Aurea on a heavily annotated version of The King in Yellow for Arc Dream Publishing, which is unfortunately a bit hard to find and somewhat expensive at $89.99. Mr. Height is a master of obscure knowledge, and although I have not read the book, I have read a number of reviews that suggest some of the sources that Chambers may have drawn inspiration from for The King in Yellow. The connection between Ambrose Bierce's Haita the Shepherd and An Inhabitant of Carcosa are the most obvious influences at least as far as naming conventions go. Haster, Carcosa, and the Lake of Holly all appear in The King in Yellow, although Chambers has certainly altered their meaning. Less obvious and only possible and by no means certain influences are Charles Baudelaire's The Seven Old Men, featuring seven identical, bent and bearded, sinister old men who roam a city drowned in a yellow mist clad in tattered yellow clothes. They instill an oppressive dread in the narrator, dislodging his soul into a hostile sea of despair. 
Marcel Schraub's The King in the Golden Mask, about a masked royal lineage of kings who cover their faces in golden masks and make their royal court mask themselves as well, each mask indicating the wearer's position in the court. When challenged by an unmasked blind beggar to see below the court's masked facade, the king takes a fateful journey towards a horrible truth about himself. In Heinrich Hanna's Florentine Nights, centering on a satanic performance by Paganini, the related passage seemingly straight out of Chambers' poem about Dim Carcosa itself. And then it seemed to me as if Paganini and all his surroundings were again suddenly changed. I could hardly recognize him in the brown monk's dress, which rather disguised than clothed him. His wild and wasted face, half hidden by the hood, a rope round his waist. Paganini stood on a cliff overhanging the sea and played his violin. It seemed to me to be twilight tide. Evening flame flowed over the broad sea, which grew redder and redder and rustled and roared more gaily and wildly in mysterious and perfect harmony with the violin. But the redder the sea became, so much the more pallid grew the heaven. And when, at last, the waving water looked like bright scarlet blood, then the sky overhead became ghostly clear, all corpse white, and out came the stars. And these stars were black, black as shining anthracite, but the tones of the violin grew more stormy and bolder, and in the eyes of the terrible player there sparkled such a mocking delight in destroying, and his thin lips moved with such appalling rapidity that it was clear he was murmuring ancient, forbidden witch spells with which storms are called up and those evil spirits evoked who lie imprisoned in the sea's abyss. Many a time did he, when stretching forth his long, lean, bare arm and sweeping the bow in the air, seem to be in sooth and truth a wizard who, with a magic staff, commanded the elements, for then there was a mad, delirious howling in the depths of the sea and the furious waves of blood leapt up so furiously on high that they almost besprinkled the pale heaven and its black stars with their red foam. The Street of the Four Winds, from The King in Yellow, by Robert W. Chambers. Music and audio production by Bob Familiar. Narration by Jim Bilbro. The poem introducing the story was read by Mandy Familiar. This has been Ambient Arcana. Ambient Arcana.